Malachi 3. We'll start reading at verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that will be not, not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Thank you. Don't worry, no rapping from me. I'm not good at it. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name's Colin, as I said. Uh, now, we've listened to some some hip-hop this morning, so I can see that you're, you know, you're pretty down with the kids. Let, let's uh, test how good you are um, at some commonly used abbreviation used in social media. All right, so the kind of thing you see on Facebook and in text and stuff. So let's try, you know, TBH, what does that stand for? Just shout them out if you know them. To be honest, good. BTW, by the way, good. Bit harder, I-C-Y-M-I. In case you missed it, thank you. YOLO. You only live once. One of my favourite jokes from my favourite comedian, Tim Vine, is let's hear it for reincarnation. YOLO. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the one I want us to think about today. FOMO. You know this one? Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. It's that idea of um, um, doing things and and living life to make sure that as much as possible, you don't miss out on anything. But the trouble is, doing that, trying to do that, is always accompanied by that sinking feeling that someone somewhere else has had a better experience than you, isn't it? You know. And I think we all suffer about suffer from it a bit in in small things. Like Sharon was driving yesterday, and it's like being on Tron with her trying to choose which lane to be in. Because this one's going faster. No, this one's not going faster. Or, you know, which checkout line you, you choose in the supermarket. You always seem to choose this. You've missed out on the fastest one. Or it can be big things like uh, who you marry, what career you pursue. Fear of missing out. In today's passage, we once again see that God's people Israel are suffering from FOMO. They're suffering from fear of missing out. Um, they don't really believe that God has got their back. They don't really trust that God is going to bless them. And they've stopped thinking that God's love for them is going to make any difference. Now, they've not gone so far they want to openly reject God. They're still turning up at the temple and going through the motions. But the priests have been offering dodgy sacrifices. Their, their relationships are demonstrating a lack of faithfulness. And now in today's passage, their fear of missing out 
is leading them to dishonor God by shortchanging, trying to shortchange God with their offerings. Uh, I've got an outline in your leaflets there. So I've gone with this financial theme, guarantor, looking at how God is someone they can trust, dead certain. Current account, we'll look at where Israel are up to and ask if that's sort of the state of our account too. And dividends, thinking about the blessings available to them and to us. So first up, guarantor. There's always a bit at the end of news reports, isn't there, where um, it's all gobbledygook to me. They talk about the markets, you know, the Dow Jones is up or it's down and it's because all ordinaries have been hit by commodities in a, a strong dollar or was it a weak dollar? I don't know, whichever it is, it always seems to be bad news, never good news. But trade stops and there's a report of how things have been and what the state of the economy is now, right now. And that's kind of what God gives them here in verses 6 and 7. So if you keep this passage open. Uh, before we get into the next presenting symptom of their lack of faith, God gives them a sort of a report. Verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? So the irony here is that Israel are are demonstrating unfaithfulness to God because they're doubting God's character. But the truth is, the only reason they're still around to moan about God is who he is. Because of his unchanging character of love, of justice. Mercy. They complain about God, but actually their only hope is in the fact that he is much better than they accuse him of being. And usually when there's a dispute between two people, you usually assume that there's fault on both sides, don't you? So when me and my siblings used to fight with one another, um, each blaming the other, my mum would say, it's a case of six of one and half a dozen of the other. Good mum saying, basically saying, you're both equally to blame. But in this dispute, God is unchangingly good. And so if there is a problem, then the problem is with his people. It's come from them. You know, we've got to the very end of the Old Testament here, and in one sense, nothing's changed. God is faithful. Kind, merciful, and just. And his people, the same old story, ungratefully turning away from him, just like they've always done. But they've become so used to it, so so used to their own rebellion against God, it's become sort of bland to them. Like wallpaper, you don't even notice it's there. They don't even recognize that they've moved away from God making a return to to him needed. You see, sin is very, very deceptive. Uh, And it's very easy for us to fool ourselves, to turn a blind eye. So we'll deal with the crisis of conscience the first few times we do a particular sin. But then before long, we kind of get used to it. 
It niggles our conscience rather than stabs it like it used to. And it gets becomes more comfortable to leave things as they are, living with that sin, than facing up to the sin and getting rid of it. So I ask you this morning, is there a sin that you've settled for that's become so much part of the wallpaper that you don't even notice it? Ask God to bring it to mind so that you can return to him from it. And the promise is, if we return to him, he will return to us. If we feel far from God, bear in mind, it's not him that's moved. And look, I know this is the application week in and week out. But every pastor will tell you, when someone tells them that they're feeling far from God, and you ask the question, have you been reading the Bible and praying regularly? Invariably, they'll say no. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, look, God is real. And these verses tell us something about him. They tell us that God is solid. He's of good character. And he never, ever changes that. He can be trusted with your life because he's unchanging. But for all of us, the good news is that in his unchanging character, God says, return to me and I will return to you. Whatever we've done, whoever we are, God's love for us is constant, unchanging. He always has been and always will be about seeking to restore us to loving relationship with him. If only we will return to him. And every one of us can do that today. Turning away from sin, trusting in Jesus to do the rest, trusting Jesus to win forgiveness. All right, so God is our guarantor. He's dead certain. Uh, But let's have a look at the current account, our next heading of his people, and think about ours. Current account. Looking at verses 8 to the first half of verse 10. So Israel's response to God's faithfulness to them was holding back on giving God the, the material offerings that they knew that he was due. So they were, in effect, trying to rob God. So verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So, uh, tithes, let's explain that. Tithe just, be in, just means tenth, as in a tenth of what they produced. So, Leviticus 27.30. This is uh, one of the laws about the temple. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Uh, So the tithes and offerings that they gave helps them, so just day-to-day practically, helps them to keep God front and central in the day-to-day economy of their lives. 
and they, the tithes and offerings help them to remember that life isn't just about the good things that we enjoy, but life's about the good God who gives them to us. And just on a practical level, the tithes and the offerings uh, were the way of financially supporting the temple and the priesthood. That's, how, that's what they lived off. So, for example, in, uh, in Nehemiah, there's a situation where the function of the temple is ground to a halt because no one's bringing the tithes and offerings and the priests have had to go back to working on the farm to support themselves. Uh, tithes were also used to support the poor as well. So what's happening is the Israelites, the Israelites in Malachi are trying to bless themselves by hanging on to the tithes and offerings that they knew weren't theirs to hold on to. They knew they belonged to God. Now, God doesn't need money, does he? And he doesn't, he doesn't even need a temple. But he'd agreed with his people that that was how he's going to be present with them in a special way and set up rules around that. And God's covenant deal, so his contract with his people, was that if they were obedient, he would give them more than enough. But here they were, dipping into God's share. So God had given them clear, uh, good, beneficial, reasonable ways to be in right relationship with him through these tithe and offering laws. But they were dishonoring God by turning into a game this way that he'd set up to be in right relationship with him. See, the tithe was a, a physical, practical way of recognizing that God was number one, setting their store in him. But instead, their store was being found somewhere else in their own hands. Their fear of missing out on blessing had led them to try and create their own instead of trusting God for it. So how about us? Do we rob God in any way? Well, we rob God when we don't give him what we owe him. And actually, we owe him our love, our worship, our obedience and sacrifice. We owe him our very selves. And why? Well, because he created us to know the goodness of relationship with him. And we owe him our lives because he redeemed us in Christ. So 1 Corinthians 6 says this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Bought at a price. In Jesus, God paid the ultimate price to save us, to redeem us. So how might we be holding out on God? Uh, we don't offer things at the temple, but how do we hold out? Well, how about our time? So Australians are generally not cash poor, but we do tend to be time poor. And it's very easy to find it completely reasonable to skip Church, Bible study, reading our Bible, praying. Or how about in our relationships? You know, choosing a quiet life. Staying in control by keeping people at arm's length. Instead of loving them as Jesus would. 
it's risky and it's costly to open ourselves up to people, isn't it? But Jesus shared everything about himself with his disciples. Or we can go too far the other way. Um, throwing yourself so much into friends and having fun with them that God becomes a sort of afterthought that you're fitting around them. Um, until you find that one day you only think about what he stops you doing and you forget how much he's loved you and just see him as a killjoy. Ways to think through, we might be robbing God. Um, just want to say a word about tithing. You know, should we tithe today? Should we give a tenth of our income to God today? Well, the Bible's got heaps to say about giving and generosity. Um, and I want to point you to Paul Harrington preached on this last year in our discipleship series. So that's still available on the web if you want to hear a great sermon about giving and generosity. Um, we've got to point out, we, I'm pretty sure none of us are Israelites. We're not Israelites with a temple and a priesthood to maintain. And we are under the new covenant. So we've been bought at a great price by Jesus. But is 10% a good guide for us today? Well, the question how much how much should I give to God is probably the wrong place to start. Well, it is the wrong place to start. Because that's based on the assumption that anything we've got is our own and we give God a portion of you know, what we think is right. In fact, what God says is that everything belongs to him and we are simply stewards of that, of what he gives us. So if we think of our possessions, our time, our sort of relational energy as our own, well, we'll be inclined to sort of be in survivor instincts and hold on to them and consider it loss when we have to give some away. But if we think of everything as God's anyway, then we're free to give it away and ironically we'll treasure more with thanks what free gifts from God that we get to keep. But tithing, well, the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing. Instead, it talks about being cheerfully generous, you know, and wherever it's up to you and you can make a difference, making sure that people do not go without, aren't in poverty. And Christians' economic thinking is to extend beyond the close of the markets. Our economic thinking is to take into account eternity. Eternity. So we're to be generous in giving the gospel Every opportunity to go out. Um, there's loads of verses we could look at about giving, but I'll th- I think these ones are suitable for us. In the world's pecking order, economically, every one of us here is very rich. So these verses from 1 Timothy, I think, are a good practical guide for us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The thing is, I could set any number of rules or guidelines about being generous to God before us. But what really counts 
is that being generous with our money, our time and relationships is the outworking of a heart that is generous towards God. We need to think, do we have any sort of entitlements in our heads? You know, a sort of a picture in our head of what God blessing us looks like. That if we don't get that, we feel that God isn't keeping his side of the bargain. You know, do you feel like these Israelites did? Do you feel let down by God? And is that making you hold out on him? Maybe you've been hurt by people or by circumstances and you find it hard to let go and trust God. Well, it's time to stop holding out on him. It's time to remind ourselves just how much Jesus gave up for us. He chose to be rejected by his own people, betrayed by his closest friends, suffering injustice at a dodgy trial, and put to the worst death conjured up by humanity. God the Son, giving up his place in heaven for death on the cross. From 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, might, you through his poverty might become rich. So Jesus returns us to God. Let knowing that grace be what drives your generosity. So on to our final heading, dividends, looking at verse 10b onwards. Thank you. Dividends. So say you get home um, from church this afternoon and you find that your house has been robbed. You know, they've not, they've not just taken valuables but they're taking personal stuff, you know, stuff that's no inherent valuable, but it means a lot to you. Irreplaceable stuff. And eventually they catch the person responsible and find it wasn't a one-off. They regularly rob people's houses this way. What do you think should happen to that robber? What should God do with Israel here who have been robbing him? And yet, he doesn't punish them. What he does is represent the original deal they had with an emphasis on the dividends, with an emphasis on the blessing they can expect if they keep their side of the bargain. So verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough There'll not be room enough to store it. So God is picking up on this covenant, this deal he made with his people back in Deuteronomy. Choose to love and obey God. Choose life. And God's people would enjoy material blessing in the land that he gave them. Lots of children, rich harvests, plenty of livestock. Or choose to disobey me and suffer curse. 
And we can see how serious the curse was in that um, it resulted, it had already by now resulted in their exile. And ultimately, it would take Jesus' death on the cross to deal with that curse. But still, God's promise for them stands. If they are faithful, God will bless them with visible, material prosperity. Now then, this passage is often used by prosperity gospel teachers to say, what's the effect of, well, actually, literally the words, give God $10 and you'll get $100 back. You know, give God $100 and you'll get $1,000 back. Can I say that is exactly the opposite of the message of this passage? All right, exactly the opposite. Giving to God materially in order to receive back from him materially materially, isn't really giving to God at all, is it? It's still making wealth, the getting stuff, the goal. and And God just becomes the cash machine through whom you get it. Now, this passage we're looking at, it's to God's people who are being unfaithful to him because they reckon he's not blessing them enough. So if we're given to receive financial reward from God, we're saying the same thing. We're saying, God, your blessings so far aren't up to scratch. Can you try a bit harder, please? Okay, but how should we think about material blessing, whether we're rich or poor? Does that mean God blessed us or cursed us or what does it mean? Well, even in the Old Testament, um, poverty and wealth are a mixed bag. So in Psalm 70, poverty um, is a sign of a righteous person being persecuted. Or Job was a righteous person who became poor because he was being tested by God. Neither of those examples because that person was cursed. In Psalm 73, rich people, there are, it talks about rich people who oppose God and oppress others. So we're not talking about them being blessed, are we? We need to avoid the error of interpreting whether God is blessing us or not solely through how materially rich or poor we are. You know, we're not God's old covenant people in the promised land. But what should we expect if we're faithful? Well, in Mark's gospel, Jesus promises us reward and suffering for our faithfulness in the same sentence. So Mark 10. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. We've got to live today recognizing the truth of Jesus' declarations in Luke's gospel that um, some of you they will put to death, that's one end of the spectrum, whilst always trusting, but not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Both things are true. See, we live knowing that whatever happens in life, whatever happens, ultimately, we're okay. Ultimately, we have God's blessing. And that's because all God's promises for his people 
are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and even expanded on. So all the promises for God's old covenant people we receive through Jesus. So Galatians 3, Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abram might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. For followers of Jesus, the promise, the certainty, is even greater than it was for Israel. So in Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we'll only fully experience all of these blessings when Christ returns. But for now, Christ's rule has begun. And these blessings are guaranteed in eternity. Guaranteed by the seal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, You were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. We have every blessing already in Christ. I think one temptation for us is to always feel like we need to experience a bit more of God's blessing in our life before we really feel like God's got our back. You know, before we really feel like we've arrived. So for me, uh, as we plan to plant a new church, my temptation could be this magic number, 113. I'll tell you why that's a magic number. So Ben tells me, if you do all, crunch all the numbers and do all the sums, a Trinity Network church with 113 adults and kids will be financially self-sustaining. All right? You'll feel like this church is safe now. We've arrived. 113. No longer feel like it. It all might fall down tomorrow. But the truth is, God has already given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. He already knows who he's chosen to come to Jesus through our church plant. And even if it did fall down, it have already been blessing us as we faithfully give it a good go. So ask yourself, what standard have you set God to prove that he's blessing you? And are you building resentment like those Israelites robbing God because he hasn't in your assessment delivered on that delivered blessing. Instead of that, look to the blessings you already have. Your eternal future is secure. You are loved and forgiven by God. Jesus himself is praying for you before the throne of God. But I think our main temptation is to hold back from giving our all to God for fear of missing out. And you know, by the standards of this world, as we take up our cross, as we deny ourselves and follow Jesus, by the world standards, we will miss out. All that time and energy and resources we give over to church, a 
whole heap of partying and sensual stuff that the world tells us is not only good, but, you know, forms your very identity. You know, if you want to marry, limiting your options to Christians from the opposite sex. In worldly terms, it costs you. You are missing out. But God's promise is not only that we are not missing out, but that we are blessed beyond all measure. And the best way to live is in light of and in line with that blessing, receiving that blessing by faith. So that's why we're not apologetic about uh, asking you to serve. That's why we're not apologetic about um, doing the unsafe thing, like planting churches. Because we're doing us all a favour. It really is a privilege to give ourselves to God. It's not an easy ride. But it's a life of purpose, which accords with the blessing that we already have. So to finish, the irony is that if we hold out on God for fear of missing out, that is when we're guaranteed to miss out. Miss out on living how he would have us live for our good and for his glory untangled from sin so don't rob God live generously towards him and others out of thankfulness for Jesus' generosity to you don't rob God honour him instead by trusting him with everything you have everything that you are don't rob God follow Jesus' example of giving of yourself generously, knowing that God will use it to bring blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, bring before you this morning any resentment we might have towards you, any fears of missing out that we have, and we uh, submit them to you. We return to you and we trust you um, through Jesus to bring us forgiveness. Please uh, show us how we can be generous. Please make our hearts generous and from that pour out different ways for us to be generous towards you and not rob you. Uh, Trusting in Jesus saving us. Amen. to sing in response to what we've heard. Uh, we're going to sing a song, an old song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, a song that takes us to the heart of uh, the proof that God showed us of his love. If ever you doubt uh, that God's generosity has overflowed to you, uh, look to the cross. And we're going to stand, we're going to sing this together, and Sharon's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer. So please stand and let's sing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince.